welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. This tape is produced in the spirit of essays, 12 Steps to Carry the Message. Members of the Fellowship should bear in mind essays 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, TV, and films in the use of this tape. Anonymity to this extent is actually the practice of genuine humility. Humility expressed by anonymity is the greatest safeguard that SA could ever have. My name is Dennis. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Hi, Dennis. Through the grace of God, I've been sober since 524-1990. Please join with me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Good morning, I'm Bernie. I'm a recovering sexaholic. And I would like it if we could just take a moment of silence and then uh, I'd like to say a short prayer to open this meeting. God, we praise you for your greatness. We praise you for the miracles that you have demonstrated to us. We ask that you would be with us here at this time to speak through these panel members. That we would hear your will for us, that we would know that your holy presence is here. We just praise you for all the things that have happened this weekend here. Please be with us. Amen. Many times I've used the AA Big Book and sometimes I get in a panic and I try to find something and I over and again I've looked up in the table of contents to try to find the 12 steps I don't think it's an accident that they're not listed either in the appendix or the table of contents they happen to show up on page 59 and I think part of that is it's sometimes we I tend to look at the 12 steps as a list and uh, I think what's possibly what we're being told is that the 12 steps are part of the whole. The, the more that we can make our lives in, integrate these steps into our lives, the more we become what these steps are about. Um, <clears throat> I 
On page 60, it talks about step three, where we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understand Him. So what does that mean? Well, many of us said to our Maker, as we understand Him, God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage itself that I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of Thy power, Thy love, in the way of life. May I do Thy will always. Yeah, I'd like to uh, ask Debbie from Detroit to come up. Thank you. Hi, my name is Debbie, and I'm a very grateful member of Vesna. And uh, this is supposed to be a spiritual panel. And uh, just to let you know, uh, those who have seen me at conferences before, I'm in a different place this weekend than I was six months ago in Rochester, New York. Uh, my, my mood this weekend is not as bright and cheery as it was then, six months ago. I came here with a lot of sadness this weekend. There have been um, some big events in the last few months uh, that uh, have really impacted me. And uh, even though I come here with a lot of sadness this weekend, I'm in an even stronger place spiritually. Twelfth step says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And because of that, I'm just going to touch briefly on some of the steps where I've had little mini spiritual awakenings. Because this uh, sense of spirituality that I have today, it didn't come to me in one giant lightning bolt. Okay. It uh, came in little uh, mini flickers, flickers of light, flickers of hope uh, along the way uh, through people just like you here uh, and through God speaking through each of you. Um, first of all, uh, when I got to step one, we were just talking this morning uh, in a little meeting before this uh, about uh, step one. And for me, I, I need to see it in two parts. When I uh, stepped into my first Essendon meeting in August of uh, 1987, I was very quick to admit that my life was, was nuts, totally unmanageable, totally crazy. Uh, but that part about powerlessness... Um, I didn't see for at least a good six months. Uh, my self-esteem was uh, as low as it could be, and I was suicidal, but I still thought I had a lot of power. 
over other people, places, and things, and situations in my life. And uh, a good friend in Asanan uh, spoke about how uh, powerlessness doesn't need to be equated with helplessness. It's not the same thing. And that was a little spiritual awakening flicker for me. That, okay, just because I might be powerless over my own craziness, over other people and their behaviors, it doesn't mean I'm helpless as far as changing something about my situation. Um, I participated in a very in-depth step study group that actually went on for a couple years. And uh, when we were working on the fourth step, I think that took... That took a good 10 months. Uh, wrote about the character defects, wrote about isolation. Actually, I didn't write about isolation. I put a big X through that section in the workbook we were using. And uh, what, just about a year, year and a half ago, when I went to an SNN retreat in, in Chicago, I pulled out that old workbook and... Uh, Realize what isolation really meant. You know, I, I heard people uh, come into Asanon, and and actually I heard people in SA talk about just isolating, cutting themselves off from the rest of the world, from friends, from hobbies and activities. And I thought, well, I didn't do that, so I didn't isolate. Uh, I, I still did things with friends. Uh, I, I worked full time. Actually, for a lot of the time, I worked two jobs. And what I didn't realize until that, you know, retreat in Chicago, uh, isolation is not just a physical thing. It's, it's an emotional thing. And uh, I was very, very active, of course, and had friends and coworkers, but I never shared myself with them. I never shared my pain. I could listen to anybody else's problem, but I walked around as if I didn't have any problems, even though I was literally dying inside. That was another little flicker for me, a little spiritual awakening, you know, realizing that. Um, step six, that's a, that's a big deal for me. Uh, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Uh, the spiritual awakening in that for me was uh, realizing step six is not an action step. You know, like a lot of the other steps, say, um, became willing to, you know, we were willing to turn our lives over. We admitted that we were powerless. We sought through prayer and meditation. We, you know, admitted when we were wrong. Uh, those are all action things. Step six, all we need to do is be open and willing. Don't have to do anything. And that was a real revelation to me because... I always thought I had to heal my being with my doing. I had to be doing, 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 doing. Uh, before recovery, I was always doing things for other people, and I certainly learned that early on. I, you know, was raising my mother since I was about five, and uh, as an adult and uh, in my marriage, I was doing things to to get approval, to to be loved. I had that need to be needed. And uh, with, with step six, all I had to, I didn't have to do anything. I just had to be and, and just be open and willing and let, let God decide when it's, when it's time and God's time. 
to remove whatever or lift whatever needed to be lifted from me. Uh, I've also uh, realized that not only has God been speaking to me through uh, members of, of SA and Ethanon, uh, but sometimes God speaks to me through the uh, oddest people, and one of those recently has been my mother. Um, I, I do believe my mother is one of those people, as it states in the uh, big book, is that one of those people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves and therefore is not capable of very much change. Um, but I've never been able to figure out why my mother is as crazy uh, as she is. Uh, she's told me before that uh, when I asked her, asked her about her childhood that, well, her father was getting drunk all the time and her mother was always having nervous breakdowns. And, well, considering how crazy my mother is, I still thought, well, so? What, you know, what else? And uh, totally out of the blue, uh, this was, I don't know, about a month or two ago, that she just blurted out something about her childhood, that she didn't have a very good childhood. And I said, well, I assume that. And uh, she went on to, to tell me about uh, these girls that her mother had working for her when, when my mother was, was growing up. And uh, to make a long story short, my I guess my grandmother was a madam, had... Uh, prostitutes working for her or living in my mother's house when she was growing up and uh, my mother said that she would oftentimes be awakened in the middle of the night to the uh, police raiding the house and uh, I really appreciate that, that bit of history and I was able to tell her that you know I'm you know that uh, I'm so sorry that those things happened and that those things went on and uh, was the opportunity I guess for my heart to feel into her heart, <laughs> uh, because I don't, you know, I don't think my mother has progressed emotionally beyond the age of, of two or three. Uh, very, very uh, self-centered and uh, can't see outside herself. So I, I believe that that bit of information just came from God through her. <laughs> because my mother doesn't talk about anything, doesn't admit anything, and that piece of history really helped. Uh, you know, sexaholism is, is, a, is a family disease. I grew up in a sexually addicted home. I'm an incest survivor, and that bit of history uh, just helps to explain where it all came from. I don't know where it all came from on my dad's side of the family, but that piece of history helped. Um, I was doing some, some reading about uh, courage before I came to this conference, and the book I was reading spoke about how uh, a lot of people think that courage is the absence of fear. And this book said that, uh, you know, courage isn't the absence of, of fear. The absence of fear is some kind of mental disorder. <laughs> so you, you can all breathe a sigh of relief now, okay? If, 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 you, if you have all this fear, it, it, it's okay. The, the courage means going ahead with what you need to do, with what's in your best interest, in spite of the fear, or in, in spite of the, fa the pain that you're probably going to feel. 
And through what has transpired in my life the, the last few months, I, I know that, that the courage is there uh, because I've uh, done some very painful things that I needed to do uh, to do what's in my best interest. I, I spoke at the at our SM birthday meeting about uh, just really knowing through and through, and then and this is a spiritual feeling that uh, never again will I blow my own candle out. Um, I won't I won't sacrifice me uh, for a relationship. Uh, I, I was engaged to be married, and I just broke off that relationship uh, four weeks ago. And uh, people told me, you know, it took a lot of courage to do that. Wedding plans were made and everything else. And, uh, yeah, it did take courage. It did take strength. And, uh, you know, through the grace of God and uh, having a very strong SNN program, very strong support system, I was able to do um, what was in my best interest. And uh, another uh, another way that uh, God spoke to me this weekend through someone else, uh, I was very touched and given some hope when I heard uh, Mike's talk uh, Friday evening. Uh, <clears throat> Besides uh, ending a relationship that I thought was leading to marriage, uh, I was also uh, pregnant, and I, uh, I had a miscarriage at the end of April. And uh, it was the saddest thing I've, I've ever experienced. Uh, many of you who know me are aware that uh, I've always wanted a, a child. The pregnancy was a total surprise, but uh, very much wanted. And uh, my fiance at at the time uh, he was there for me that day but you know a week later he had difficulty understanding why I was still feeling sad about this and uh, what I've learned also is that it's that I can have simultaneous feelings meaning I can I can feel sad about what's the events that have happened the last few months but I, I still know that there's a lot of joy in my life and uh, that's, that's what recovery has given me. Uh, I, I can feel the pain. I can feel the joy. And through coming here this weekend, uh, I can feel the hope. That's, uh, that's something I, I requested and put out there to God that, at the birthday meeting uh, that I wanted this weekend. Because I know I, I know I have the courage and I know I have the strength. But uh, I needed to go back home with a little ray of hope. And that has transpired for me this weekend. And... I'm uh, I'm grateful to everyone who's here. Uh, everyone from Portland, this has been a tremendous conference, and everybody from around the country. Uh, I just appreciate the, the fellowship. I appreciate the friendship uh, and uh, all the love and acceptance I've felt this weekend. And uh, I'll end there. Thanks. Thank you, Debbie. Um, I forgot to mention something. Three years ago, uh, I went to treatment uh, 
for uh, codependency and also the sexual disorder. And I was uh, it was about a one month uh, time, and and um, there's a lot of denial that was confronted there too. Uh, a year later, I went back to uh, the, the center for a reunion, and <clears throat> I got to know the director while I was there because I'm really, really bad, you know, I'm really special. Uh, so I, I got to uh, have a little time with him on Saturday evening, and, and he said, well, Bernie, how's your, <clears throat> how's your recovery going? And I said, well, it's, it's going pretty well, uh, except for the spiritual part. And uh, he said, oh. That's the most important part. So that was that was a real wake-up call again. I'd like to introduce uh, Gordon, our good friend from Dallas, from Galveston. Okay. Now my name is Gordon, and I'm a sexaholic. And. Uh, like he said, you know, the spiritual program. Well, the whole, uh, my whole life is, it was a spiritual program. I didn't know it. But I didn't start to growing until I got a spiritual experience and start learning from my mistakes. Uh, in 1960, my daddy passed away, and, and uh, I figured he died of a, a broken heart. And, and I couldn't handle it. And... Uh, I wound up three times in the strong room in the Marine Hospital. I was drowning with alcohol. And the third time they wound up and sent me to the nut house. And the spiritual experience there was that all they had to do was put me in a ward with a bunch of people that didn't know one end from the other, and I could see that I was on a pity pot feeling sorry for myself, you know. Uh, and I got into the program, and I can look back on my daddy's death, and he did not die of a broken heart. He died because he retired and quit riding his bicycle. So I have a bicycle, and I ride it now, you know. It's a learning experience. Uh, I'm Mitch Kuyper's uncle, and he passed away the 27th of uh, April with AIDS. He, uh, seven years he had it. And I'm so grateful to be his uncle because I learned so much from him. Uh, I've seen so many, so many miracles, you know. Uh, I've learned to, uh, it's, it, like if it, it's a growing experience. I'm just here now, and I, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but as long as I can learn to enjoy today, uh, I'm all right. I got this here down here is, uh, boy, got to run fast here. But any time that in my whole life i got a bunch of, list there, every time I got into a jam, instead of having a spiritual experience, I changed my attitude, you know. Like I wound up in the strong room and the uh, psychiatrist told me, he says, find yourself a good girl and you're not going to find her in the beer joint. And I said, well, I'm not looking for a good girl. I said, she has to be bad or I won't have nothing to do with her. And he said, well, you better change your attitude. You're going to wind right back up here. So I made all the bad girls good and I had a lot of fun doing it. And when I shipped out and went to sea, I didn't have that guilty feeling of doing anybody any harm. Uh, but it was the wrong course, you know. Uh, I sobered up in, in July 10th, 78. And they asked me, uh, interviewed me and asked me if I'd be willing to bury my mother. And I said, well, my mother's been dead for nine years, you know. 
And that was the most intelligent question anybody ever asked me. Because all my core belief system comes from my mother. And I come to find out that she was God. That's why I couldn't accept God. And, and once I got that out of the way, I was at a meeting the other day and a fellow had lost his mother. And uh, they had their life support system. They had to cut it off and they backed the daddy up on it all, you know, and he's crying. And, and uh, then come my turn to share at the meeting. I said, you know, a person isn't dead until they're forgotten. I said, my mother's here right now with me, you know. I don't know what happened to all the resentments and all the anger and all this, but it's gone. I had to get rid of that. And because I can see that, well, I knew that, never mind, I know a lot of things. She lost her daddy when she was 13 years old, and she married my daddy, and she's jealous, possessive, domineering, you know. And I was my daddy's favorite, so I was on her list all my life. I could never do anything right. But it wasn't her fault because she didn't have a program, you know. See, I found the program, and all I have to do is take my mother's inventory, and I've got mine. It's beautiful, you know. i got a lot of work to do. Uh, I was 47 year, days in, in the treatment program, and, and while I was there, the spiritual experience, I was there three weeks, and uh, I got a three-day pass, and I went to a young people's meeting. Now, I don't know what took place in that meeting. I know now what... A lot of people, like you, were honest about themselves, and I felt part of. But I woke up the next morning, and I'm singing a song, and I'm all alone. And I heard it described later that I woke up and said, Good morning, God, you know, instead of saying, Good God, it's morning. And that has been the strength that's kept me here. And when I lose that good morning, well, then I'm in trouble. Uh, Anyway, we'll get, we'll get on down here real quick. Like uh, In December of 92, I lost the good morning God. I lost the spirituality of the program. Uh, I was at a conference, and I started bawling, and, and I said, I've always been part of, and I was always on the outside looking in, and, and I felt miserable. And I was scared to drive through Houston. I said, there's something wrong. That was in November. Well, December, it kept getting worse. So in December, I called the crisis line. And I checked into the hospital. And, but people knew about my celibacy, and I'd getting good advice from AA members. You know, my problem was that I had to go out and get fixed and get off that celibacy kick, you know. And I called the crisis line. I said, if I go back on any of my addictions, it'll be the same as committing suicide. And so they wound up and... Uh, I told them, you know, all my past history and all that stuff, and they had it. And they had me down charged with disillusional disorder, and they put me on the antidepressant drugs, you know. Now this is all spiritually. I didn't want them, but I wanted to stay alive. There was something wrong, and uh, it took them till uh, the 15th of uh, March to discover that. Uh, well, they sent me to have a head scan and uh, CAT scan. They found out I had a brain tumor, about the size of a golf ball, right here, and stopped the head. And the first of March, they operated and removed it. And but I had to get rid of that before I could get the Good Morning God back. But if I would have been satisfied with the uh, antidepressant drugs that they give me, I'd be dead now. But I wasn't happy without that Good Morning God. And I kept complaining, kept complaining, and kept complaining. But it, what it taught me is don't ever be judgmental of another person because he might have a brain tumor. 
<laughs> you might have a brain tumor. But people loved me when I couldn't, they accepted me. When I first got in the spiritual experiences that I was at a meeting when I was first and I didn't know if I was here, there, or where, you know. And, and old John Kane, he had three years clean and he said, put his arm on my shoulder and he said, that's all right, son. He said, we're all just one drink away from being a drunk. And it made me feel part of, I was accepted. Somebody accepted me. Then I started to grow, but I had to find somebody who'd accept me first. And then when Neil Madlock said to me, he said, Gordon, he said, how long you been around? I says, uh, eight months and 15 days. And he says, uh, you know, he said, I think you're going to stick around long enough to find out how long it takes to have a baby. And I called him some real choice names, you know. And he says, uh, no, all kidding laid aside, he says, you've really grown. And I said, I don't think so. I said, I lost 50 pounds, but I haven't grown any. And he said, oh, yes, you have. He said, as much as you have grown, everybody around you has grown with you. Here's a man with 20-some years clean, you know. And I found out I was looking in the wrong place for my growth. So I look into others to see the growth. I have it. If I can't see it in others, it isn't here. What I look for is what I get. There is no such thing as a free lunch. I had to quit being negative. I had to be positive. And uh, God has removed the lust from my mind. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. But if, uh, if lust comes in now, it's because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, I go to a conference, a, a NA conference in Lake, Lake Whitney, and I didn't want to go there. I was there the first one they had, and I was still going to sea, and I told them, you know, if you go to sea and you use drugs, they take your semen's paper. So what am I doing there? But I was going into NA for my sexual addiction, you know, and I told them my core addiction is sex. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people identified with me. The only reason they, they used drugs was to quiet their emotions, you know. Anyway, uh, a few years later, I didn't want to go to that conference. And uh, I'm down in Galveston, and, and that sexual urge started coming over me. And I said, okay, God, I'll go. And then it left, you know. And I got up there, and uh, the topic at a men's meeting was, how many believes in celibacy? And a whole bunch of them raised their hands. How many have been celibacy for one year? And a whole bunch of them raised their hand. They said, how many have been celibacy for one year without masturbating? And I was able to tell them the bottom that I hit, you know. But it isn't very pretty, you know. It didn't come easy. I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I reached out for help. And I got a bottle. Uh, I didn't bring it with I got it out in the car, but I don't have enough time. But a bottle with a cork, and I shoved that cork all the way. As long as the cork's in the top of the bottle, it's doing something. You're content, you know. But when you go too far over, the cork goes all the way into the bottle. And you're hooked up in your, you're hooked in the snare. You know, you go for the snare, you're in there. Now, the only way that I could get out of that bottle is yell for help. And some of you over here in an SA meeting heard me, and they come along with a 12-step pennant, you know. They said, what's the trouble? I said, I got problems I don't know what to do with. And so they lowered that 
rag down there with 12 step pennant row down there and I catch that cork up in that rag and they pull that cork right out of the bottle but I couldn't do it myself uh, I was at Wichita at the conference they had a workshop on uh, release from the snare and I said to the fellow he got me to share it I says where did you get this he said I thought it'd be a good subject I forgot the Wichita before I'd had that bottle and I showed him but I didn't think about it as a snare and all this you know so I says, uh, well, okay, I'll see what happens. So another fellow from Chicago, uh, Kansas City, he said, in a snare, there's a bait. And you go for the bait, you get caught in the snare. And the only way you can get released from that snare is get somebody else to release that trap so you can get out. And that's what we come here for, is to get out of the trap that we was in. But somebody else has to release that trap. We need a living example to follow. Uh, I was on a ship, and the chief engineer on there, we was sharing bits of wisdom, and uh, I was introducing them to the 12-step program. And I sent them the one about troublemakers are teachers, you know. And I got that all wrote out, and he come back with a note and he said, we ought to castrate them and hang them, you know. And I just looked at him like he was crazy, you know, and shook my head and walked off. About an hour later, he gives me this piece of paper. Now, if I would have accepted the first thing, I'd never got the beauty here. Whether knowingly a knowledge or not, you are a servant of the Almighty. He directs all things. This explains why plus and negatives exist at all times. However, it is only natural to cancel out a negative with a positive from time to time. In this manner, a destructive force is eliminated. It can be any kind of force, you know. And, and I'm going to close with this. Is it not true that we make a friend? We don't, uh, that we, it's not true that we destroy an enemy when we make him a friend. Thank you. Thank you, Gordon. And now we'll hear from Harvey A. from Nashville. Hi, I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. You know, talking about spirituality as a separate topic here uh, made me think a great deal about how can I talk about spirituality as a separate topic. Uh, because all weekend we've been talking about spirituality. Now, I was told many years ago there is no spiritual part to this program. It's a spiritual program. And so when thinking about talking about spirituality, I thought rather I'd share with you a few things recently that to me is spirituality. I want to start with yesterday when I heard Mike from Oregon talk about his son coming to his house drunk and stoned and yelling at the front of the yard to come out as he wanted to beat him up and how maybe a year before Mike would have gone out and really got into it with him. Instead, this time, he went out 
and he held him and hugged him. And the young man's been sober ever since. Spirituality is when I was in London last October. And I went to an essay meeting. And it was a small group of essayers. And what did they do for their program? But they read from the blue book. And I saw the blue book. And I said, I'm not going to tell these people my stories in the big, in that blue book. Because that would be ego. And so they're reading it. And all of a sudden, I start bawling. And weeping at the meeting. Not only were they reading the blue book, they were reading someone I sponsored's story. And all of a sudden, I shared with them finally. I want you to know I'm experiencing the 11th step. You know, why did I have to be the low life and do that low life living I had to do why did I have to do every one of those low down things why because God's will for me was that four or five thousand miles away someone might have their life saved from reading something that happened about me and that was for me, spirituality. Spirituality is when I go every Wednesday night to be with my mother who had stabbed me when I was a child. It's when I listen to her and care about her and some months ago went and made us, it was a, uh, our Sabbath and I went from services to uh, her house and she said what are you doing here and I said I just came to hold you mom I have a feeling you don't get held very much and she froze up and I went and I held her and she doesn't hug me or kiss me or tell me she loves me basically but I held her and I said bye mom and the next week when I saw her and she saw me, she, was, she cried to, to let me know she couldn't believe I did that. Spirituality is when I think my wife's wrong with something she said and I can keep my mouth shut. Now, I always don't do well in that spiritual level. And spirituality is what I saw yesterday when we gave a standing ovation to Iris and Roy. It's something that I experience, not something I know. And in putting all this together, I felt... I want you to read to y'all something from Bill's story. He said, 
simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. The destruction of self-centeredness. To me, that's at the core of my spirituality. But how does one do that? How does one do that? Bill's story tells us the three paragraphs before. He just says it. He says that within the day he was at the hospital, he did his steps. He he took care of his character defects by acknowledging them. And then he asked them to be removed. And then he made his amends. It's that process that permits me to have my spiritual awakening. And what are those spiritual awakenings for me? It's to see God when Roy and was hugging Iris. And to see God when Mike was telling us about holding his son. And it was to love my mother unconditionally. Because today she's a paralyzed woman, 82 years old. You know, she's not that woman when I was 15 who did what she did. And if she were, I'm not that boy. You know, I can see that. And how do I get the steps? How do I learn these things? Not by studying. It doesn't work that way. I once said to my sponsor, who had 29 years of recovery, gee, Cherry, when you went to AA, there were only three meetings a week. And I go to 12 of 14 meetings. Well, I have what you have in that quicker period of time. And he just laughed. You know, his answer was, nope. (laughs) I won't even have it after 29 years. But um, he said, no, it just takes time. And what, what does the time Include It includes letting God talk through you to me. Uh, I have to hear me through you. I had to be taught in Rochester many years ago about loving my mother unconditionally from a woman who spoke about how she had been incested for years by her brother, Her mother knew about it. She had to separate from them both as it was even going on in adult life. She had to separate herself from both. And one day she learned that her mother was dying on her deathbed from cancer. 
and she went to her mother's bed in the hospital and she held her mother and told her mother all the things she had always hoped her mother would tell her she instead told her mother do you know how many times I've told that story at SA at AA and why because it's part of me today it, it's inseparable that story just like other things you've taught me you know there are people in this room you know I have learned so much from and so I'm going to keep coming back uh, I'm going to keep traveling as best I can uh, I'm going to pray about it but I'm still afraid of earthquakes so I don't know if I'll be in LA uh, but you know some are sicker than others and uh, I still have certain phobias but that's who I am today maybe it will pass especially if I talk about it you know I'm traveling to the tropics and as you all know I've had terrible leprosy phobias you know my chances of meeting lepers you know unbelievable uh, I'll read Roy's article and he used the word leper colony and I thought I'd die that the word was in there this I'm so phobic and uh, uh, and now I could say the word and I go to the tropics we traveled to the tropics we traveled all over someday you know, I might be a leper I might go to India you never know that's the miracle of this program so I might end up in LA one day but uh, so thank you and thank you for giving me my life you know and uh, and I never cease, you know, there's a gal, Jean, who was here a lot, and she used to say, you know, I'll never be sufficiently grateful. I will never be sufficiently grateful enough that God chose Roy to do this through as a vessel. And I know he's just a vessel. Because I'm just a vessel in Nashville. So I understand the vessel stuff. I understand just doing this stuff. But man, am I appreciative. And I never could verbalize it until someone came up to me who I care about in SA program in Nashville a year after my operation and said to me how glad he was I was alive. You know. Who would have thought my life would ever be that way? And so thank you for, for letting me be so happy I'm alive another year since my surgery and to be part of this wonderful fellowship. Thank you. Thank you very much, Harvey. And now Roy Kay from Simi Valley. Hi, my name is Roy. I'm a sexaholic. Uh, 
I'm just so grateful to, to be able to follow Harvey and Gordon and Debbie and um, uh, it's really an experience just to just to be here. Uh, I kind of have a feeling, none of you knew this, but we all got together, the four, uh, all of the speakers, and designed what we, a perfect program just so that we'd all compliment each other. <laughs> we didn't know it either. Uh, you know what I'm saying. Um, you know, this is supposed to be a spiritual panel. Well, I've got to let you know that I'm very much here physically. And, uh, but uh, it's just, it's an experience uh, for me. Every, you know, we're all growing. Uh, uh, Gordon said it. And uh, if I can't see the growth in you, then I can't grow. If I'm not willing to see God in you, I can't grow. And um, uh, the thought came to me up here. It's kind of scary looking at people's faces. You know, I'm not used to being in front. And uh, it's, uh, it was so terrifying when I first got into the program in late 74 in AA to, to be around that table that I just couldn't take it. Uh, I couldn't stand looking into your faces. But today... I had this strange experience, the fact, and somebody, just before I came in, told me about his wife's face. And I began to look in the face of women up here just now. And I saw there's no way of describing that life for me is incomplete if I can't let a woman into my life, let her face into my life. And all I can tell you is life is there. God is there. And then I got to thinking, well, I watched Gordon while he was speaking. And I'm also afraid to look into the face of men. And that's another kind of gift. I haven't figured this out yet. This is the first time I've ever thought about this. But there's, there's something here so powerful, which is all spiritual, that I can know God and know recovery no more than I can know you and let you into my life. Not into my house, especially into my... Look in your face and take you. That's why in, in the couples meeting last night when I dropped the seed, my action item was to look into Iris's face and smile. Look into her eyes and smile. Because that doesn't... I don't do that. I can't do that. I'm an isolate. And what I think I'd like to try to talk just for a minute about is a new... Something new I'm... I'm confronting in my spiritual experience that is so new, I don't know what it is, and so I'm going to be, for the first time, trying to figure it out with you, trying to do my inventory. And that's all I can give is my inventory. I can't give knowledge. I can't give psychology. I can't give sex addiction. I can't give cultural history. I can't, you know, we can do all those things. But that's knowledge. Knowledge doesn't say 
All I can do is give myself, and the only way I can give myself is to bear witness to the truth of my experience. And that's what we've been doing this morning. And that's what I want to do. I'm coming to a conclusion, to a basic re-understanding of myself that I don't even know how accurate it is. So please take what I'm going to say as something I'm struggling with. The substance and basis of my whole life until just a few days ago was the fact that I am an ego, that there is a self in me that demands my care, attention, and devotion. That self is in me. It's almost like an alter ego, a super ego. That self is something that dictates to me, that judges the world, perceives the world, and is, demands my attention, care, and devotion. I have unwittingly accepted that all my life. I see today that's a delusion. That that is a pseudo-self that I create. I don't know how I can describe this. Let me just try. Okay, let's say I meet you. And let's say I know you. I get to know you. And I see something in you I don't like. I create a pseudo-person in that instant. I see those few characteristics and I build, I create a person. This is the creative power of God that we have. And I think we can do this, but we misuse it. My impression of you is built on those selective impressions. And so I create a pseudo-person, a pseudo-Iris, a pseudo-Harvey, a pseudo-Gordon, a pseudo-Bernie, a pseudo-Debbie. And this has characterized my entire being. Okay, now why do I have to create the pseudo-person? If we can understand this, this is the basis, this is the ultimate bedrock under our addiction. I have to misperceive the reality of your being to keep love out because I'm a child of God and the natural instinct of my spirit is love, is God, who is my Father, the creator of my spirit. But somehow, in childhood, sometime, I don't know how, I don't, it doesn't matter how, I chose to shut love out. And I have hunched most of us did the same thing. And to do that, I have to create an entity to take its place. Today, I have a, a spiritual sponsors for me have, have, over the years in recovery, listen to this one, just a couple of sentences. 
Uh, this is from uh, Love Thine Enemy, uh, MacDonald. The thing that now makes you dislike that person is separable from him and is therefore not he. That's right. What makes me dislike you, the cause of my resentment, the reason for shutting God out and creating a pseudo-person and thereby validating my pseudo-self and that ego that is not exist, that does not exist, that is a delusion, a creation of my will to take the place of God. It's not you. It's not you. Here's another sentence. Okay, now, the man thinks his consciousness is himself. I think my consciousness, my ego, my, this one who is dictating to me, my, that wants my attention and devotion, he thinks his consciousness is himself. I have a separate consciousness. That's me. That's the I. No. Whereas his life, my life, consists of the in-breathing of God and the consciousness of the universe of truth. To have himself, to know himself, to enjoy himself, he calls life. Right? Whereas if he would forget himself, tenfold would be his life and God and in his neighbors. This is so powerful, I don't even know where it is, but I want this. And I believe that somehow I've been living a delusion and therefore owe an amends to, to most of the people I know in the fellowship. Because I, my first instinct is, to, is, is this perversion of the reality, to only look at those things and to find and seek those things in your words, your demeanor, your face, your actions, that'll give me a reason for creating the pseudo-person rejecting you and therefore keeping God out and keeping love out, keeping myself divorced from the source of my life. Forget keeping us separated. That's why the essence of this program, Bill says, is deflation of ego at depth. This ego of Roy has to die, not just be deflated, die. And I want it killed. I don't want that self anymore. I want the love of God. I want the natural in-breathing that will make me my full self. The self that can look in your face and just take you in. This began to dawn on me a couple of years ago when this four-year-old next door would come knocking on my door when I'm in the middle of great thoughts. <laughs> you know, uh, this is a delusion. I mean, and here was life and God, and I could This man, this, this gift of God, this fellow came from a very dysfunctional family, I won't tell you the story, would keep looking, I'd open the door reluctantly, and the instinct is, get out of here. <laughs> you know, I don't let him in. But he stands there with those big blue eyes just looking up at me. And he will not go away until the invisible curtain goes down and I take him in. And it's such a marvelous experience to take him in. Somebody's little baby up here, a couple of babies around here this weekend, and I could do the same thing, look in their eyes and take them in. I could never do that. You know, I'm a babe in this program. 
I, I want a new beginning. I want the love of God. And it takes death of this ego. And all I have to do is recognize the lie that you are what I have created out of my need to shut love out. Iris isn't here. I don't know what she's doing. She's probably out there talking to somebody else. But she, she uh, when our son got married last year, she, we gave them a wedding present, and Iris has started watercolors, and so she uh, did an Iris. And uh, this, isn't, this is just a copy. They've got the original. These are the leaves, however. And so she asked me to write some words for the card for an Iris. And so I wrote these words. And this, amazingly, she said, and she found this in the storage, huh? Oh, she's here? Oh. <laughs> uh, just before we came, she found this going through the junk that I had left around somewhere, I don't know, in, in the unused bedroom, uh, by which you're all invited. Anyone's there, that unused bedroom you can stay in. Anyone here? Uh, and... Uh, she, she kind of said, you know, uh, you ought to take that with you. You might need that. And I, my first reaction is, what is she talking about? You know, but I'm getting to sense some of those signals, just like the face of the four-year-old boy that are the gift of God. Anyhow, here's, here's what I wrote, and it has to do with the bulb. You know, the iris thing is the bulb. Okay. Consider this lovely iris bloom. The stages along... It's life's precarious way. A drab, misshapen little bulb, anonymous and withering, wrapped tightly in itself alone, destined to leave its solitariness in hope for something better. Burial in earth's dark womb, this unlovely lump, believing that losing self means gaining beauty. Now the life embrace of soil and sun bring drastic change as elemental nature works its awesome way. Painfully, defensive wrappings yield to dissolution. Fearful change. But soon from that relinquishment, mysteriously, a single slender shoot emerges, pushing upward, groping for the light, and finally breaking through gasps exultingly in the new resurrection. How quickly stalk and leaves arise to energize transfiguration. And from sheer joy of feeling sun, buds spring forth through womb placenta wrapped and blind to break through their imprisoning shrouds. The miracle was taking place inside all along. And the energy of flower life bursts forth in glorious blossom faces, smiling open to the sky, full color fresh and radiant with joy. And life is like this lovely iris bloom. Its stage is no less needing faith to bear the thousand natural shocks along its sometimes painful odyssey towards celebration, the mystery of life, and love. We're at a stage in SA where we're facing the greatest organizational changes and the greatest temptation SA has ever known. 
That is to create a system. And the hallmark of system is something that shuts life out. Let us in all of our deliberations be careful that first we let life in and the organization will flow from that. First things first, from the inside out. My prayer and my hope for myself today, and I can't do this without you. I can't do this without looking into your face, the face I don't like, the face I know something wrong about, the face that doesn't look like, you know. And there's so much to this subject. I can't do it without you. And I can't do it without my wife. I want to just reiterate what I said the other day. There is no recovery for me, anything beyond what's recovery in this marriage, with this person, and with you. I don't care how many years sober. Sober is not well. There is no recovery, any more degree of recovery, than I have with you and with my wife. Let us pray together. Our God, we just want your love. We don't know how to have it. We need it. We're all working toward it. And we open our hearts as this And we're willing to go into the ground and the dissolution of the wraps of that death shroud we have put around us. We're willing to die to see the beauty of each other in your life and love. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. And now we'll hear from Rhonda from Chicago. Hi, my name is Rhonda. I'm a grateful recovering member of SNN. And I feel very grateful and privileged to be here with you, my sick compatriots. Um, I did write a few things down, and uh, if I talk about those, great. If I don't, well, I guess God didn't want me to. I am discovering just how, how this program is a spiritual program, how, how that's all there is, really. I didn't understand that when I came. I didn't really understand anything. I was pretty clueless. I thought that uh, I was, this was my role. I'm supposed to come to the auxiliary group to help my husband recover. Um, but then I started getting into my own pain and my own feelings and all the crap that I had stuffed for a long time. So this has been a, um, this spiritual journey has been um, slow, painful, um, but increasingly wondrous. And I, I just want to share some of that with you. I, I find particular comfort in the words of the second step, came to believe. Um, you know, because as a perfectionist, I, I think that I should already understand this and I should be living it. Um, but, you know, that's not what it's about. Um, so I take comfort in that, that, that there is a process that's involved. I remember when I was doing my second and third step work with my, my beloved sponsor. And, um, and yeah, I was getting into that perfectionism thing, and I remember whining to her at the end. I said, well, I just, 
I, well, you have to understand first that from my faith tradition, there, there is um, an individual named Paul, St. Paul, and he had a, a very Bill W-like experience, you know, this flashing blindness, incredible spiritual awakening. And, and so I was whining to her at the end. I said, I just want to have like a St. Paul-like experience, you know, God kind of going, zap, you know, and I get it. And, she, and we laughed, and, but, but there, there was actually seriousness in my heart. This is what I wanted. And um, in the particular format that we were using, there was a place for her to write kind of her response. And she put in there, and I just cherished this, she said, Rhonda, you are having a St. Paul-like experience. Keep reading. <laughs> because um, I have selective memory and selective reading, and I like to just look at the good parts, <laughs> the parts that really impress me. And I, I forgot that uh, St. Paul goes on and has major struggles with faith major and is always lamenting his unbelief so I'm having a very St. Paul-like experience I also uh, in our s and step study guide um, have always it seems like my eyes just stop when we're doing I think it's step two maybe step three but I think it's step two where it, it there's this line that that I think is lifted actually from the big book of AA it talks about how few of us could be reasoned into faith that it's not a matter of logic, that, that we came to faith through seeing the actions of God in our life. And my eyes have always lingered there because I think um, I think I should be argued into faith or, or have that, but the reality is that um, I am seeing the actions of God in my life and that is what is bringing me to faith. Those little, as Debbie said, those many spiritual awakenings along the way, that is, um, that's what it's about. I want to say, too, just to start off with, you know, I think a lot of times in our recovery we can dwell on the negative and we, we go through that blame stage. It's like, woe is me, my parents did nothing right, I, you know, therefore I am the miserable wretch that I am today in pain. And I really, I want to say here today how grateful I am to my parents. I mean, yeah, they did a lot of um, unhealthy things, but... Um, they inculcated me with um, a belief in God, period, you know, a foundation. Now, that God looked a heck of a lot like my dad, um, you know, kind of, kind of distant, emotionally unavailable provider, but not there. So today I'm, I'm changing that, but I'm real grateful that I had that basic belief. That's never been a problem for me, and I see a lot of people struggle with that, so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. But as I said, I'm, um, my faith and, and my spiritual awakening has come slowly over time, and I want to share a few of those things with you. Um, I heard sometime, a long time ago in program, how there are no coincidences, there are just God incidences. And I didn't understand what that meant at first, but I understand now, and I want to share a few of those God incidences uh, from my life with you. It is no coincidence that I came to recovery in Nashville. I live in Chicago now, but I started in recovery in Nashville, and prior to that, I lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, I came to recovery seven months after my husband and I were married uh, because his life went to the toilet in a big way. And, um, and I just got to go along for the ride. And um, the, the amazing thing about that is it was kind of... Um, there was no reason we should have been in Nashville. 
the company he worked for and works for is based there, but we could have been a lot of other places because um, I, I, we got married. I was going back to school. I had my choice of a number of cities, and we just kind of ended up in Nashville. And the reason I say that there's no coincidence here is when, I mean, you know, what better place to come to recovery in this program, particularly five years ago, than Nashville? If I would have come to recovery in Chicago five years ago, there's, I probably wouldn't have come to recovery. There was just about nothing there. But yet I was in Nashville of all places. That I was, uh, another little God incident here, I was um, at university there, and uh, I went to the counseling center when this all came down, and, and I said, I need help. My husband needs help. <laughs> How do I get it for him? Um, and they referred me to a therapist in town who I now know to be really one of the, in a practical sense, one of the top experts in the country on this. Um, and I dogged her for a week and got a hold of her, and, and she said, well, I'd like to see him, but I can't. I have a four-month waiting list. And that was my first clue that this was maybe something real and something bigger than what in my mind I thought it was. But it's no coincidence. And it's no coincidence that she said, um, I'd like you to come to my office, pick up this packet of information, and I'd like you to both go to these meetings on Thursday night. Um, so we went. And uh, it's kind of funny in retrospect. She, she said he'll know whether or not this is a, a problem for him. I find it hilarious that now that she didn't take tell me, you'll know whether this is a problem for you, because um, I, I was clueless. I, I find it no coincidence, it's a God incidence, that uh, I have the sponsor I have. She is the perfect person for me, and I would have never known that. She, she looks nothing like me. Her experience is totally different. Um, you know, she's, I don't know, 48, something like that. Um, I'm 32. I'm from the north. She's from the south. She's married. You know, we, we, there's nothing in common with us. And she came up to me one day at a meeting, and she said, I don't know what your situation is, but I, I relate a lot to you. I know we're different, but I'm wondering if you'd willing to be willing to sponsor me. <laughs> I was like, excuse me. <laughs> who, are you, who are you talking to? <laughs> Not me. Um, so we've actually co-sponsored each other. And um, she's been the perfect person for me, the gentle, nurturing soul, female soul that I did not have growing up. There's something about these microphones, you know, it's like... <laughs> um, likewise, um, it's no coincidence, it's a God incidence. Um, the therapists that I've had, they have been the perfect people for me. I firmly believe that my higher power has steered me toward them. And it's just little coincidences that come up. Um, my current therapist, I, I was asking actually my pastor for a referral, and he says, well, you know, I, I'm not sure, because I was actually asking for a career counselor. And he says, why don't you call over here? And I called over there, and the center said, well, we don't do that on an individual basis. And just this, this thing welled up from within me, this honesty, and I said, well, 
I'm actually looking for a regular therapist, too. <laughs> and this is what I need. Chunk, 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 chunk. You know, my little analytical self came out, and I was directed to her, and she's been just a gift, a gift from God. This disease is no coincidence. Um, this may be just my personal bias, but um, I'm really grateful that it's this disease in our lives because I believe that the recovery from this disease is so true and it's so bottom line. I, I've, I have seen a lot of people in recovery, and in fact I've got a sponsee right now who came from Al-Anon. She'd been in Al-Anon for five years, and she said, you know, I finally get it now. Because this is just so deep, and it's so, it gets to the core of it. And so this disease is no, no coincidence, because I truly believe that my God wanted me. And I just wasn't listening before, and he had to use a big enough hammer to get my attention. Um, t- um, for the last five years, um, the time in recovery, those of you that know me and uh, know my story know that I've um, had per- just incredible angst over the fact that I don't know or didn't know what direction my career should take. Um, in my family of origin, you are what you do. My father is the uh, president of a trade association. Uh, my oldest brother was an attorney. Uh, the next one's a commodities broker. The next one's an accountant. There's me with a graduate degree. My sister's an insurance underwriter. We, we just look good. And... Um, and so I came out of that, you are what you do. And for the, so for the last five years, I've had zero, zero clue about what to do next. It's like there's been this fog, and the doors are closed, and I just don't know. And um, that's been hard. It's like um, bucking the family tradition. But I'm here today to say that my, my higher power, my God, has an impeccable sense of timing. Because while, while the last five years have passed by and I've struggled with other things, I've been struggling with this issue too. And I think that my higher power was wanting to drain me of the whole idea that I am what I do. And it took a while. And I'm really grateful that today I have some direction finally within the last six months. And it's real clear. The fog has lifted. There's been insight, and I see the open doors. And I'm grateful. Um, and like I said, there's, there are no coincidences. In the last five years, I've been doing things that um, will r- directly relate to what I'm going to be doing. They, they have laid the foundation for what I'm going to be doing, both on a, kind of an interim basis and long term. There are no coincidences. Finally, um, in terms of coincidences, um, I truly believe that I'm married to the person I'm supposed to be married to. Um, We're learning to fight and to argue, to have struggles, to have conflict, and to hang in there with each other. And um, 
for two people that would prefer to withdraw and escape, um, it's a struggle. But um, I truly believe that that God has given me in the package of my spouse the things that I need for my spiritual growth. And so I'm willing to hang in there with it. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I've got the, um, the tapes of Chuck C., a new pair of glasses, and I'm learning to look at life with a new pair of glasses. And the line from that tape about um, heaven um, is just wearing a new pair of glasses. It's all about perspective. It's all about attitude. And I'm learning to look at life with a different perspective and attitude. I'm learning to see God there, see where he is, hear where he is through you people. Um, I'm learning to be open to God's presence and help along the journey, to just be content on the journey rather than quit looking for the end point. I'm, the, I'm trying to develop the habit of discipline, to, to continue to be open and to remain open. I am doing things as uh, like I'm not uh, playing the radio on my way to work, on my commute. I am uh, getting quiet. I'm checking in with God. At stoplights, I whip out my uh, Alan on Courage to Change. And uh, maybe that's not the most focused, disciplined way to do it, but it's, it's what I can manage right now. And what's kind of interesting about that is, um, I'm going to dare to share this. Um, when I get real quiet in the car there, and I get real honest, and I tell God what I'm feeling today, and what's going on with me, um, I get goosebumps when, um, when God... He doesn't necessarily talk to me, but I know I'm connected when I'm getting goosebumps. And it has nothing to do with the temperature of the air in the car um, or what's going on. I just know I'm connected then. Um, And that's kind of cool for me. I'm really grateful for that, um, that God has given me that little physical sensation to know when I'm connected. So it's about willingness. It's about uh, getting quiet for me. It's about um, noticing things in nature, in other people. Um, it's about change in attitude. It's about working the steps for me. Um, God speaks to me through those steps and through, um, through the open door. I'm trying to actively practice the presence of God in my life. I, I really appreciate what Nancy A. says about uh, when she hears the sirens, you know, the fire truck or ambulance going by and says a prayer for the people. And therefore, but therefore, by the grace of God, go I, help those people in need. But mostly, I guess I'm trying to remember that it's progress, not perfection, because that's my deal. I just want to do it perfectly, and God's not speaking to me, and on and on and on and all this in my head. I'm trying to let go of that and to just be in the present and be in the moment. And I'm, I have to, I will finish this with this. I'm so grateful for these conferences. Because every six months, I get to come and uh, get a little reality check. And I see the growth in other people. I see Debbie. And I remember where she was six months ago. And I see where she is today. And, yeah, I see the pain. And I see the sorrow, the grief, and the sadness. But I also see that serenity and strength to know what she's gone through in the last six months and go, wow, but she's still here. And she is still strong and serene. I get reality checks that way. I remember, you know, Lee, uh, wherever Lee G is, because she came about the same time I did and how much pain she was in. And to see her today. So I'm real grateful for all of that and for you. I'm 
so grateful that um, Harvey was sick enough <laughs> to, um, to help start SA in Nashville because without that, Nancy wouldn't have been there and my life wouldn't have been impacted like it has been. And that I couldn't have gone to Chicago then and uh, been impacted by the people that are there, by the Pams and the Frans and all the people that are there and that have touched my life because that is God's action through those people. Um, thank you so much for letting me share with you and for being here. Thanks. Thank you, Rhonda. I'd like to just keep going on forever and ever in this. It's great. Um, could we close with the Our Father with a big circle? And then I have some announcements to make while you're making the circle. I'm sure you can walk and listen at the same time as long as you don't talk. Uh, check out time is 12 o'clock. For those leaving today, be sure you take care of that. We're going to ask for a seventh tradition before we leave the room today to help seed money for the uh, conference in uh, Orange, California. And uh, somebody lost an eight-year sobriety chip, so uh, one of the four eight-year sobrieties. Uh, it's yours? What did it look like? Come oh. get it. <laughs> it's right here at Roy's place. It'll be safe. Okay, uh, right after this meeting, we'll take about a 10-minute break. Essanon has a meeting upstairs, uh, what, remembering what to take with Maria and uh, discovering what to take. And we have an open mic in this room. After the open mic in this room, there'll be a conference committee for the conference, conference committee people of both uh, the next conference and this one. And... Uh, yeah, we'll just take a quick break between this meeting and the open mic. Thanks. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. And we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.